Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Entercom's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. And I know you'd like to be sitting there at work just refreshing the page every 15 minutes or so and watching everything new that we put up there. The bosses might not appreciate that. So here's what I recommend. Follow us on social media. Little click on your phone, little click on your mouse, and your life will change for the better because you'll be kept up to date on everything that we are putting out there coming from our website, coming from other websites that have great information that we want to make sure that you get. Again, we are at Connecting Vets on all social media, so be sure to follow us there. We're now joined live in studio by two representatives of the Wounded Paw Project. What is the Wounded Paw Project? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Wounded Paw Project is working to save the lives of dogs in kill shelters by training them to serve as service animals for veterans, and by doing that, perhaps save some veteran lives as well. They are live in studio now to give us all the details on what sounds like a truly wonderful program. Please welcome Wounded Paw Project founder and CEO Ernesto Hernandez and Executive Director slash Navy veteran Greg Sipple. Good morning, gentlemen. How are we today? Good morning, Eric. Thanks. Well, I want to first start off by introducing the two of you and talking a little bit more about your backgrounds. Ernesto, as I just mentioned, an Air Force veteran. I know actually an Academy graduate from out there in Colorado Springs. Tell us a little bit about your service, when you joined, where you served, and what you did while you were in the Air Force. Sure, I'm a Mustang. I enlisted on February 1st, 1988. Uh, had one very short enlistment time of 18 months, followed by being accepted to the Air Force Academy. Went to the preparatory school first, graduated in the class of 1994, red hot. From there, started out as an acquisition officer, had a small stint in aviation. Unfortunately, 9-11 happened, and my life changed, and I was detailed to different agencies in the national capital regions, and most of my career after 9-11 was deployed to the hot areas. Right, and uh, there's certainly no shortage of those after September 11th. And during the time that you were serving after September 11th, I happen to know that you're also a Purple Heart recipient. So you're someone who not only went to those hot spots, but obviously uh, had to do some stuff while you were there. And we're glad that you've made it back and that you've started this wonderful program with the Wounded Paw Project. You're also involved with the Military Order of the Purple Heart. Is that right? I am a member of Military Order of the Purple Heart, and I was a former executive director slash national adjutant. Right. So involved in the VSO community, uh, I met Ernesto very briefly one night, shortly after I moved to our nation's capital and first heard about the Wounded Paw Project. I'm glad that we've now been able to get you into the studio. Now, Greg Sipple, you (laughs) joined the right service, the United States Navy, and of course served in there. So uh, retired commander in the United States Navy. So tell us a little bit about your time in the Navy, where you're from originally, when you joined and what you did. Well, uh, I'd like to say one thing about Ernesto's service, and I'm glad you pointed it out, Eric, is that he is a Purple Heart recipient, and he's going to be very magnanimous, but he received that in a very heroic actions and um, saving the lives of others. So um, I think that's a great testament to uh, the sort of moxie and uh, sort of individual he is. Now, my background is Navy. I was a Naval Flight Officer in the S3 Viking, uh, Ah. so I had a lot of fun doing that. But uh, ultimately, I ended up going in the reserves after 12 years of active duty and then stayed 16 years because of 9-11. 
And uh, from there, I had a lot of exposure in the private sector where I worked as uh, business development, business strategy, and uh, was a consultant uh, for some top companies. And then ultimately, I went into business for myself, but I really wasn't happy until I found the uh, nonprofit sector. And I was a uh, president and CEO of another uh, dog organization helping veterans, but uh, ultimately, Ernesto and Wounded Paw Project is what captured my eye, and I really wanted to be part of this organization. Now, you mentioned something interesting there, serving in the reserves, and I think one of the interesting things that we've found from our retired reservists in particular are people who, who have served in the reserves for an extended period. There's almost two transition periods, one where you go from active duty to the reserves, then the other one when you go from the reserves to uh, the civilian life when you're done. What can you tell us about both of those transition periods, and what were the big lessons learned for you in transitioning, one, from active duty, and then two, from the reserves? Well, uh, Eric, you, you hit the nail on the head. It, it really is a unique experience for us because, and then we'll even throw another one in there because we'll get recalled and then we'll have to stop our civilian lives, go play military and then return again to civilian life. And I've gone through that cycle several times. Uh, it's a challenge, but I was, uh, fortunately well-versed in how to make that transition successfully prior to the transition assistance programs that are now in place. It really was a terrible way to leave the service. It was kind of, thank you, here's the door, and, and out you went. And uh, it was up to you to find your way. I had some background and had some help through people who were executive headhunters, and it turned me on to somebody who was in the career outplacement business, who ironically, her husband was a former Marine. So yeah. uh, she understood my background and was able to articulate to the point that I was doing my interviews and not coming off very military-esque. And uh, <laughs> I, I removed acronyms from my lexicon. And <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. You know, when we talk about all the different acronyms, even inter-service, it can be a problem. If you go up to a soldier and start using Navy acronyms, they're going to look at you like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. And then have a young soldier ask a young sailor what their MOS is, and the sailor's going to look at him and be like, <laughs> I, month of service? I, June, I guess. I don't know. What, what are you talking about? Now, Ernesto, let's talk about your transition. Of course, serving in the Air Force, enlisted, and then officer over 20 years. What do you remember most about leaving the Air Force, and what was the big lesson learned for you in your transition? Well, mine is very unique. Uh, I was actually going to retire when the Air Force med boarded me at the last minute because of the injuries I sustained in Iraq. Uh, that surfaced, so I ended up getting some surgeries, but the Air Force didn't know what to do with me because you don't have too many living Air Force Purple Heart recipients. So it was a very unique transition, but at the same time it was very seamless. There was a program that DOD and the VA integrated called IDIS, Integrated Disability Evaluation System, which for me made it very seamless in transition out and getting my benefits. Hmm. So I have worked with the United States Air Force mainly here at Andrews Air Force Base to give them those lessons learned. They do have a transition unit now. They did it when I was going through it right. to ensure that veterans or soon-to-be veterans are getting the right proper education, training, and that transition out scope for them. You know, there, there's been improvement in that area, certainly. I think even since when I got out, because when I got out in 2011, uh, I was in Afghanistan, found out I'd be getting out, not by choice. The Navy was cutting people, and they said, hey, you're going to be one of them. And I went, All right, well, I guess. Went back to Guam, went through the transition assistance program, and what I found during my transition assistance program, you know, two weeks to uh, prepare for ending 13 years of it being your everyday life, not necessarily going to be enough. And then also, 
it seemed that most people there were trying to tell me to get a job with the government, and I had no interest in getting a job with Amen. the government. So it was like, <laughs> well, I know you guys all think I should go work for the VA or DOD or the Merchant Marines or whoever, but that's not at all what I'm going to do. But it was nice to dress in civilian clothes for two weeks anyway. Um, <laughs> I think there has been great improvement, at, at, you know, as you said, Greg. There was nothing almost when you got right. out. Now, Ernesto, you talked about when you got out and they did have some stuff and now it just keeps growing. And I think there's a greater understanding of the fact that veterans go from one very specific lifestyle to another. And if they're not prepared for it, it can lead to some problems. There are a lot of problems that can be addressed in a lot of ways. One way that we can address specific issues that our wounded veterans have, whether it be physical, whether it be mental, is through service dogs. And what Wounded Paw Project is doing is absolutely fascinating and something that when I told my wife, as she's a big rescue dog um, proponent, our dog came from a shelter that had lost their lease and we went there and said, we're getting a dog. We may not have room for a dog right now as we had a couple others, but we're going to save one of these animals. The Wounded Paw Project is taking animals from kill shelters specifically and training them to be service dogs. Tell me, Ernesto, where this idea came from and why this wasn't something that had been thought about by people prior to the Wounded Paw Project. Well, let me start with this first. Uh, we adopted a dog named Daisy, and really I call myself the founder. She is. I'm the co-founder of the organization. <laughs> She's a lab pit mix. And so when my injury started surfacing, this started back in 2012, right before I got medboarded. I wasn't able to get out of bed. And she recognized something in her, in me, excuse me, such as a puppy that of hers, and she started literally babying me. And then when I couldn't get out of bed, she started throwing her tug toy onto the bed. The first time I thought it was okay, cute. Second time I was annoyed. And third time I kind of snarked at her a little bit. But she did it a fourth time, and she was like, hey, knucklehead, grab <laughs> it. I'm going to help you get out of bed. So when I saw that, I couldn't believe it, so I started giving some small taskings. And I noticed there's something in a rescue that is a little bit different than a pure bed is that they want to serve immediately because they don't want to go back to a shelter. Mm. A shelter is a jail to them. So that's what started Wounded Paw Project initially, and we have grown since then. There are some people, as I understand it, Greg, that don't believe in you know shelter animals, rescue dogs being used as service animals. Uh, I don't know exactly why that is, but I'm sure you can give me a, a little bit of the information on why someone might think this should be dogs that are bred from birth to be service dogs and trained that way. Why do people think that? Well, Eric, uh, very nail on the head once again is I came from an organization like that. And one of the reasons why I jumped on board with Wounded Paw Project is because I also felt that way, is that you could bring a, a, a dog out of a shelter, make that into a service dog. The problem with going for the top end, absolutely perfect specimen is you're instilling a lot of cost into the process. You have to breed, you have to select, uh, and then it takes years to get that, two years at least to get that dog to that level. You can grab that shelter dog, you can train it the necessary tasking that is needed for the veterans and still be a remarkable animal. And as Ernesto alluded to, the dogs are so appreciative. There's something unique about those animals that they have the ability and they're intuitive to study you as a human being, know what you need better than clinicians and everybody else. And that's why I think the rescue dogs are such a, a grateful bunch to be in part with a veteran, I just seen so many good things happen from that, that it's, it's very archaic thinking to say that you needed a purebred dog solely for this purpose. 
most veterans only need that companionship. It's interesting that you talk about the intuition. With animals, we've seen in natural disasters that they have a sense. They know something's coming. When I was stationed in uh, Greece on the island of, uh, of Crete, there would be power outages that would come. And you know when you knew they were coming? You could hear the dogs howling before the power went out. They could tell that something was about to happen, even as simple as the electricity going out on the island. Right. These brownouts that we would have throughout the day. Ernesto, what goes into the training of a service dog to kind of hone those natural instincts to be able to help a veteran specifically? What is the process of training a rescue dog to turn into a service dog? Sure. Uh, really, it's, it's, there's no formula for it. It's really dependent on the veteran. So whatever the veterans needs us, we look for. Initially, we go to any kill shelter, local organization. We're actually nationally. We get them out of Harris County. We get them out of San Antonio, uh, out of uh, Miami-Dade, which is horrible. And we just basically can just tell there's something about that dog that has a natural instinctive to want to serve. And from that, we hone it. So we do do the basic obedience of you got to make sure that it's not aggressive, it's not uh, attacking, it's not marking property, it's not doing the stuff that it shouldn't be doing. And from there, really, it's really they take over. We just help them get into the next step. So I'll let Greg a little bit with this one uh, add to it. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, the uh, dogs are are interesting as people are uh, and is unique and different and varied. And so when you go at it with a open mindset and you play off their strengths, use what they are, what is their motivation. If they are treat motivated, food motivated, use that as a reward. Uh, if they are play motivated, you use that as a reward. And then you can also start adding onto those the prerequisite skills necessary for that to become a fantastic service dog. And another thing that you brought up earlier was the financial benefits of yes. this, which let, let's look at the, again, the perfect specimen service dog. I think when you ask someone to close their eyes and describe a service dog, they're going to think like German shepherds standing at attention, ready to leap into action and help. They are expensive to breed when you come to these purebred yes. dogs specifically. The training is expensive and extensive. And you don't know, just because they were well-bred doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to make a great service dog. Many of those dogs don't make it through the training. Whereas with a rescue dog, you would have those same issues. Some of them you might think like, yeah, this dog might be good. And then it turns out that they're not. Well, you haven't spent the many, many thousands of dollars. And it, while it doesn't matter to me what it costs to help our wounded warriors, it, it, finances matter. Costs matter. And if something's too expensive, it makes it untenable. This is a way that's able to save money, save lives of these poor dogs and kill shelters, and save the lives of veterans, right, Ernesto? It is. Uh, let me give you an example. The average cost is about twenty to twenty-five thousand. Greg can give you a little bit more from his past experience. But we just had a call three weeks ago from an Amish community, not a call in the sense of a cell phone. I was going to say, what are they, hey, 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 what <laughs> they, are they, they doing over there? Yeah, they mailed a note to someone who finally called us. Smoke signal. Exactly. So there was a dog that was too friendly. So myself, and we do have a trainer, and I'll give a shout-out to Dominion Canine. is an excellent Air Force canine trainer by trade. Uh, we went out to visit a dog, a perfect dog. First day we did is got a health check. Uh, right now we invested probably $3,000. I think we'll probably not even be close to the $5,000 mark, so a quarter of the cost. And we're taking it out to New Mexico, right outside of Albuquerque, for a Vietnam veteran that needs some assistance with dropped items, retrieval, and a lot of companionship. So like so we're hoping to keep the cost at least half or maybe even sometimes at a 75% off. You just said uh, 5000 is compared to 25000 right. That's even less than a quarter. That's a fifth. 
I, I'm not very and good at math. And it's even worse if you really it. look at the numbers, Eric. I'll tell you what, um, my last organization uh, sort of envisioned itself as the Harvard, Stanford, you name it, of dog training. And the bottom line was the expense was tremendous, but just like uh, – a higher education, you can go to the state university and get uh, an incredible degree and be, if not better, in a lot of ways because you're a little more well-rounded and exposed to a different sort of universe. Same with the dogs. And we actually had costs that exceeded $30,000 per dog. Oh, boy. Amazing. And and again, when it comes to, since you worked for an organization that did that, who's paying that? Where's that money coming from? Is that coming from donations? Is it coming from the people receiving the dogs? Who bears the brunt of the cost? Well, you know, it's the it's always the kindness and generosity of donors and people who care. Uh, but you have a fiduciary responsibility to those individuals to do this in a fiscally responsible manner. And that's where I ultimately drew the line. And, and I realized that we could do this in a much more cost-effective manner and not to uh, commoditize the dogs in any way, shape, or form. But if you look at it from a manufacturing throughput standpoint, it is just a more efficient process to use these rescued animals. And when all is said and done, let's say that animal doesn't succeed, you still have a far better rescue and adoptable animal than you did before. So these dogs, we're improving their lives while they're improving our lives. Process improvement is a huge thing. I, I know this. My wife is a Six Sigma black belt, so oh. Oh. she would look at that and say, "Like, oh, you're cutting costs from twenty five to thirty thousand <laughs> down to five, and through that, you're able to get five service dogs out for every one through the other organization." If you present that to the donors, just like you would to a board or investors, which one are they going to prefer? Now, have we been able to show? And we're speaking with Ernesto Hernandez, founder and co-founder and CEO, along with his dog Daisy, of the Wounded Paw Project, and Greg Sippel, the executive director of Wounded Paw Project. Have we been able to to document this and show that, yes, this does work, that there are these successful service dogs that came from shelters, that came from the rescue dog community, and if you're able to show that and prove that, well, that doesn't seem to leave a leg to stand on for organizations that say what you guys are doing doesn't work, does it? By this spring, we'll have all the data for you. We're compiling it. We're a very young organization, but we have years or decades and decades of experience. I've been working with dogs all my life, but it's a 5-1-C-3. We're barely here on our second year mark, but we are in our third fiscal year. So to answer your questions, yes, I'll have every empirical data available to you to show that with the throughput that we're putting through. We have several dogs in a pipeline. Uh, we're using veterans to assist us. We have a Navy SEAL right now out of Maryland working with one, one beautiful dog out there. So, If people have an idea of, you know, they know a shelter near them that's a kill shelter and that's having trouble, or they know a shelter like the one in Long Island where we got our dog Walker, which was losing its lease and had a bunch of wonderful mm -hmm. dogs. He had a brother that unfortunately we couldn't take with us as well. Um, you, can people reach out to you guys and let you know like, hey, this shelter here might have something and they might be willing to work with you? Uh, can people do that? And also, how do you build those relationships with the shelters who I would imagine are more than happy to have their dogs not being euthanized, but instead being useful? Yes, we worked with kill shelters to save the dogs. And we also work with not no kill shelters to place them because unfortunately, there's too much of a demand for them and too much supply out there. There's too many dogs. And as I mentioned earlier, Miami Day is one of the most horrible organizations for kill shelters in New York as well, as you're aware of. Yeah. So, yes, please reach out. Our hashtag is at Saving a Paul. Uh, reach out to us. And if we can't take the dog immediately, we'll work with the organization. So it's Last Chance Animal Rescue out of Maryland, and they can house a dog for us or find a foster family for it. 
And you guys are at Saving a Paw on Twitter, Facebook, social media, at Saving a Paw, not Wounded Paw Project, but it's the organization is the Wounded Paw Project. Have there been any true success stories that really come to mind when you talk about what you've been able to do already, Ernesto? <laughs> there's many. Uh, but the thing is, there's, uh, I'm always cautious with this because we had some folks that really don't want to go on a record this time, so right. I'm very careful. But we do have a couple that's going to be coming up the pipeline, but I'll use me as an example. Right. Uh, I had a daisy really changed my life. Uh, I was that guy drinking too much. I was putting my hands through walls, and she's actually figured something to calm me down. You know, here I am, an academy grad, a type personality. You know, I don't think I have the invisible wounds that I did. Mm. So I can personally speak to it that yes, and I have a lot of friends out there, seals in particular, that are they could be a testament to it. And they'll go on a record here, hopefully here in the next couple of weeks. It's it's huge for people to be able to do that, and I totally understand those who don't want to, those who don't want the attention, Correct. those who just want to live a normal life, but there are going to be people who are willing to speak out, and it's going to be able to uh, really shine a light on on what you're doing, and, and if it's working as you say it is, again, this is going to, it, it might change the game when it comes to service dogs, because we really have uh, a bit of an epidemic in this country of dogs being at shelters. It was amazing to me when we were um, looking for a dog after we one of our dogs passed away, um, looking around at the, the government shelter basically out there in Suffolk County, Long Island, mm-hmm. looking at the individual shelters. There's a place called the Little Shelter on Long Island that's very well known up there. Uh, the one that we found that was essentially in a strip mall out in rural Suffolk County where wow. there were... I don't know, 75 dogs that they had in there, some cats, a couple of birds. I mean, there are a lot of people doing great work to try and help these animals, but the number of animals, it's staggering how many of them there are out there, and this could make a dent in that while also helping our veteran community. Correct, and back to your original statement, yes, we are going to change the model. We're not going to fail. Secondly, there's over 100 million homeless animals throughout the United States, and only 10% end up in shelter, and half of those are destroyed yearly. Hmm. Hmm. And it's 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 incredibly unfortunate, and and it can be even infuriating. As a, you know, as a Navy guy who spent some time in Norfolk, I would see the building of a certain four letter organization that claims to be for uh, treating animals ethically. I don't yes. know if you can connect I, that dot. I, I certainly can. Who are, uh, I believe, the largest kill shelter in the nation, and almost none of the animals that they take in are adopted out. They just get rid of them. They say, no, these don't. They, essentially, that organization believes that animals shouldn't be pets, and it's it's a whole crazy thing. But, you know, seeing that there are organizations out there like the Wounded Paw Project and others that are trying to do great things to help the dogs that are out there, and in the case of the Wounded Paw Project, help the veteran community. Absolutely. Greg, what have you gotten as far as feedback from the veteran community and from, you know, your fellow sailors who heard about what you were doing? It's tremendous. I mean, when you talk about lives saved, it's, uh, and, and you've probably seen the stickers, who saved who, um, because the animals are doing a tremendous job. And one of the reasons why I'm so proud of being aligned with the Wounded Paw Project is that veterans are receiving the dogs quickly. Most of the organizations, one like I just previously left, it was taking a couple of years. And these are veterans who need that help now. And the problem we have on top of not only euthanizing dogs is of course and cats and every other animal out there is that we're losing veterans at an unbelievable rate due to suicide and uh, you know whether the number is 22 a day or if it's one a day it's too many and the dogs can mitigate that and in so doing we're doing a great service for the animals bringing them into their lives changing 
the veterans' life at the same time. And now, as a society, we benefit from that because the indigency, the abuse of the opioids, uh, boosting their drugs with alcohol or illicit, illicit drugs, all of those things that come downstream of that, if we get the dog in there in time, we can change that. We can break that cycle. And it's important to break that cycle, and the Wounded Paw Project is certainly doing their part to try and address it. We've been speaking with co-founder and CEO of the Wounded Paw Project, Ernesto Hernandez, and Executive Director Greg Sippel, Air Force and Navy veterans, respectively. Now, Ernesto, we've already said the website once in the, the, the social media accounts, but if people want to find out more about the Wounded Paw Project, if they're interested in trying to help you guys out, join the team, donate, things like that, where can they go to do that? Uh, go to our beta website. Our information is on there, but I'll give you my personal cell. It's 703-503-9449 or send us an email at info at woundedpawproject.org or, as you mentioned earlier, Facebook, Twitter at Saving a Paw. Saving a Paw is the social media account. Woundedpawproject.org is the website. Ernesto just gave you that phone number and their email address. So this sounds interesting to you. Reach out. Say hi. See if you can help. See what you can do for them. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.